Welcome, everyone, to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your co-host, Carter Laren. I'm joined by Carrie Smith, as always, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Please follow us at unsafeshow.com um, and also on Twitter at unsafeshow. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash unsafespace. And you can find both the Unsafe Space and the Deprogrammed Facebook pages uh, on Facebook, obviously. Also, there's uh, audio versions of these that get made into podcasts, so you can look up Unsafe Space on any podcast app, and you should find us. So, welcome, Carrie. Uh, good to... Oops, wait. I need to unmute you. <laughs> I can use equipment. Welcome, Carrie. I think you're unmuted. Uh, Hi, Carter. Yeah. Uh -oh. I'm here. Okay, you're here. So... <laughs> What we want to talk about today really was inspired by uh, Carrie's anger, I think. Is that right, Carrie? Yeah, I get. we were going over a list of possible topics, and this one made me the most passionate, I guess. So I'm really, I, I'm about to get worked up about it again, I can tell. So That's good. Um, I'll, I'll start using the word passionate instead of anger because it makes you less, uh, makes you sound more rational. So... Uh, Actually, anger is fine. Anger is fine. Yeah, I don't want to. I'm. I realize I'm uh, falling victim to the uh, vilification of anger. So here's what's happened. So the guy that's pissing you off mostly right now, I think, is uh, Mayor Bill De Blasio of New York City, and he's got a proposal for um, the school system. But before we really get into that, can you describe? Um, I don't think everyone is is familiar with this concept of kind of these elite public schools. And I know you went to something similar where you grew up. Why don't you describe first what these schools like Stuyvesant High School and these other ones in New York, what, like what's different about them and, and how does that work currently just to set context? Sure. Well, this, the I'm from South Carolina. Um, the school that I went to, it wasn't called a magnet school, but it was it was an elite uh, academic school where it was a boarding school. You lived there for two years and you had an application process that was similar to college application process. Um, and it was a, it was a blessing. I mean, I was, I was, I was thoroughly blessed to get accepted to this school because the quality of education was, was something that I wasn't getting at my home high school. Um, and it also put me in with a lot of people who pushed me and challenged me. And I would say, before I went to that school, I didn't even, I wasn't learning how to study. I wasn't learning any, any type of conscientiousness. Um, it, my, the school I grew up in wasn't very rigorous. Um, I have stories about the football coach and geometry class that I can share again, if you want, but I was really just, I was also kind of angry about the school I was at and, and, and the lack of, um, mm, it, it was just boring. I'll put it that way. It was pretty boring. So yep. I have a special place in my heart for these, uh, for schools that, um, for, for gifted kids that like push kids who are high achieving. And so I'm not exactly sure. It's, it's a little bit different the way that New York picks the students. They have a standardized test. That's sort of like the SAT. It's called the SHSAT. And so they have eight of these elite high schools and uh, they accept middle school students who pass of course, they have to pass the test. It's a standardized test. They accept, I think it's like the top 5% or something. And they have a great record of churning out, um, you know, kids who go on to get placed in some of the top colleges and 
Um, they, they just, they have a really great record. And the thing is they're public, just like the school I went to. So it's just a matter of merit. It's about being able to get in to, to showing that you deserve to be there. And one thing in particular about these schools that I think is interesting is that they are not pulling from like the wealthiest communities, you know, 40, I think it said 44% of the students who go to these schools in New York city, these elite high schools, 44% of them are poor enough to get free lunches. I mean, they're already pulling from poor communities, but de Blasio's problem with it is that he doesn't like the optics. He says it's not racially just because it's something like 73% of the students are Asian. Um, 22, I think it's 22% of the students are white. And then, um, 2% are Latino and 1% are black. And so what he wants to do is he's like, well, this isn't diverse. We're going to change this. And he's got a couple different ways he's trying to do that, which I don't know if you want to go into those or if you want me to, but. No, I mean, I think also I, so you made a, a point about um, it's helping underprivileged kids, like economically disadvantaged kids. Right. And so I think one of the criticisms of the school system, right. Is you generally wealthier kids have an opportunity to go to better schools because they can go to private schools and that kind of thing. And the whole purpose of this is to try and correct for that. And I think yeah. currently in New York, what is it? It's like, I think you said something like 50% or somewhere around there of the attendees are actually from impoverished communities yes. or, or live below the poverty line. Yes. It's already pulling kids out of poverty. So you have, what he's upset about is you have these Asian kids, a lot of kids of immigrants in, you know, Korean and, and Chinese neighborhoods who are kicking ass and spending all their free time studying so they can do well on this test and preparing for their future. And he doesn't, and so he wants to punish those kids and he's trying to right. hide it. Uh, so one of his proposals, he's trying to hide this, like obfuscate what he's doing and say, well, we're going to help, we're going to help poor kids get into the school. Poor kids are already getting into the school. So just say right. what it is you're trying to do. Like, and, and the other thing that really I think is astounding about this is the schools are elite because the students are elite. <laughs> like they don't have special, um, right. they don't have, they don't have a lower student to, to teacher ratio. Um, they don't have any special facilities. You know, there's a Colette article that there's a lot of articles about it. Um, even the liberal press, even the mainstream press has done a lot of opinion pieces against this. Um, but there's a great Colette piece that's kind of talking about, yeah, the, the, the schools are elite because the kids are elite. If you start right. watering down admission standards, then why have the schools? Why even have a gifted school? And right. it makes, it, there have been numerous studies done that show, and I think you corrected me about this. And, and I thought the study showed that when you put low achieving students with high achieving students, it does help the low achieving students somewhat. But, and you're saying that's not the case. It doesn't even help them. Well, so what I've seen, and I've looked at, this is mostly for college and we can assume it maybe translates uh, to, I haven't, I haven't read the high school stuff, but I've, I've seen some stuff on college, um, because it's been studied because of affirmative action quotas. So it's been studied, uh, pretty extensively. And I mean, before we even get into that, just, just imagine, I'm sure we've all been in situations in which we're kind of the worst in the room at something. Right. Or, and for, for me, it's like, I think of karaoke, like I had to go to Japan <laughs> a lot for business. Uh, years ago, right? And I would dread the like after business karaoke parties because I am, if there's an opposite of Freddie Mercury, uh, it's me, 
so I, I like singing wise, <laughs> my voice is horrible. Um, I'm very embarrassed by any singing. And so, you know, I imagine like if I, if I was in a school for singing and I'm surrounded by all these people who are much better than me, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to be in that environment and, and you feel really self-conscious and every mistake that you make is, is magnified and, um, it's, it's more than just challenging. It's, it's, uh, it, it's disappointing. It's like it, you get dejected from it. It's, it's mm -hmm. very discouraging is the word I'm looking for. It's very discouraging because you're never going to catch up, um, because you're in an environment that, uh, in which you really don't belong. Like I don't belong in Juilliard. Right. So <laughs> I would feel, you know, I wouldn't succeed. I mean, I might, I might graduate if they had low standards and they were trying to push me through, but I would never become Freddie Mercury or, and I would never not actually, he was totally untrained, which is great, but uh, I would never become a famous singer as a result uh, of just, but you might graduating. learn, you might benefit in some ways from being there, but what you would also right. do is, is pull, pull down the, um, the level of, uh, um, I don't know, what's the word, instruction. So they would start having to teach to you. And th that's what every study shows that high achieving students, <laughs> they don't benefit from having low achieving students in the class. Right. But, but it also shows, so if we look at like, um, there's, there's this thing that happens to, I'm, I'm looking at some of these, uh, studies now, right? There's this thing that happens when, when, kids go to college and they have uh they don't have the same academic achievement level as kids around them right and this predominantly happens with uh um affirmative action quota kids mm -hmm. right but they they get in with lower sat scores so sat scores are good because uh, i think you mentioned when we were chatting yesterday carrie uh gpa is is a it can be an okay measure, but also there's like lots of grade inflation or or at least lots of variance between high schools. So GPA is not always the best measure, but standardized tests are pretty good. So if you if you go off of like SAT scores and stuff, kids that get in with low SAT scores, well, a couple things happen. One is they have lower graduation rates. Um, they also tend to so, so they tend to drop out. They also tend to have poor performance grade wise than if they had gone to maybe, let's say they get into a tier one school, they have poor performance grade wise than if they got into a tier two school and just went there instead, where maybe they're uh, middle of the pack or even ahead of a lot of the, the kids at that school. They'll, they perform better. Um, and grades are actually highly correlated to how they succeed afterwards. So there's this idea of like, oh, we push them into these environments and because it's it's all about quote opportunity and they'll do better, but really, uh, even for those students, it actually doesn't doesn't really help them in the long term. They tend to get poorer grades. They also, if you look at um, this is just super interesting, right? So the sciences are one area where you can't, it's you you can, but it's very difficult to have non-objective grades, right? It's like you got it right or you didn't get it right. There's not like I like your essay on you know, Native American spiritual practices, like that's a very subjective grade, right? But, you know, you don't just like someone's result in math or physics. It's right or it's not right. And 
if you actually look at interest rates, um, that sounds weird. It sounds like I'm talking about <laughs> economics. If you look at the, if you look at how students are interested in in science and engineering, it turns out that actually, um, let's see. If we look at this, let me read this. So. This is a study from 1985 sampling 27,000 students. Um, the interest in science and engineering, uh, so majoring in actually biological science, physical science, or engineering in descending order. So these are the groups that are most interested to least interested. First, the Asians were most interested, 52.6%. Then uh, they're using the word Chicanos. I don't know how that's different than uh, Hispanic origin but or Latinos, but 35.7%. Uh, then American Indians, 34.5%. Then African Americans, 34.2%. And then whites, 27.3%. So uh, the what would traditionally be called minorities or people of color have a greater interest in science and engineering. However, what happens is they typically drop out at a much higher rate, like switch to another um switch to another major at a much higher rate. So um, that that interest dies, right? So in one study, 70% um, of Asians persisted in this ambition, 61% of whites, 55% of Hispanics, and 34% of blacks. So what's happening, I, th I think often what's happening is they're, they're, they're made to get excited about this. Like you should be interested in these things, go into this, they, they get into schools that maybe, um, and it's not through no fault of their own, right? The standards are lower. We can go over that. They lower the standards to admit more kids because they have a, a particular idea of what the racial makeup of a college should look like. But these kids that go in that get admitted on the lower standards, they get discouraged about their ambition. Even if they're really ambitious about doing this and they're excited, it turns out it's harder for them uh, because they probably shouldn't have been admitted to that school in the first place. And and then, you know, changing majors actually has an economic impact. Um, and presumably a psychological impact as well. It's like, oh, well, I, I can't do this, so I've got to do something else. Um, I, that's probably not good for your psyche, but it's definitely not good for your pocketbook because typically now you're staying at college longer and paying them more because you wasted uh, resources doing something that actually uh, you don't want to do. And just as a quick, uh, if we just look at the quick, um, this is from 2005, but if the, the diff, so I'm sure it's worse now, but if you look at the difference between um, SAT score requirements for um, Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, and Whites. Uh, I'm looking just at people in the 75th percentile and above here, but this is this trend carries for all of the percentiles you look at. Uh, Asians had to hit a score of 1480, Whites 1430, Hispanics 1360. These are at top tier schools, and Blacks uh, 1270. Right, so you've got people getting in that have, you know, a 1270 competing with, you know, Asians that have got 1480 and naturally you're not going to perform as well, assuming that the standardized test measures something real. Well, this and is so what, this is what you, for you, it's horrible. And this is what you see happening. It's not just at the New York city, um, elite public high schools. It's also in the Harvard law, the Harvard lawsuit that's happening right now where you have Asian American students who are suing because they're being discriminated against. Their standards yeah. are higher. So it, they're being punished for high achievement. And yeah, and for hard work. And and, and, and for hard work. You know, and I don't I can't think of any other field where a field of competition or, or what have you where um 
merit and excellence in that field is not what is not the thing they're looking at to, to allow you in. Like if I, I couldn't join a, a class of Olympic swimmers. Do you know what I mean? Like we, we measure it on yep. based on how fast do you swim period. Your race doesn't right. matter. Like there's no, can you imagine going and starting to say, well, in this sport, we're going to have to have. Uh, right. I mean, the classic example is the NBA, right? It's like, you don't have enough Jewish representation in the NBA. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know. And not to pick on <laughs> Jewish people, but they tend to not be as good at basketball. Now, why that is could be cultural. There could be some genetics. We don't know. The point is people want to watch good basketball. And if you applied these standards to the NBA, the NBA would probably, I don't know if it would go out of business, but it would be much less profitable and much less interesting to watch because it would be terrible. Be, yeah. You'd be cutting people that are really good and replacing them with people that like probably are pretty good, but shouldn't be in the NBA. Right. Um, Can you imagine if this is how we pick our baseball teams? If we pick our, it's just, Oh, I'm sorry. You have to have this percentage. It's, it's all about equity. Oh, and, and de Blasio, what does he call it? He calls it, his equity and excellence agenda. Equity is right. right there in the title. What, there's nothing about excellence there, but equity is right there. So, well, no, it's not even really equity, right? Because this this concept no. of equity is uh, flawed. From it, th this is actually one of the most, I think, corrupt concepts that that permeates uh, culture right now. This concept of equity. People aren't equal. I mean, they should be equal under the law, and they're equal morally, unless they. You know, do bad things, right? But people aren't equal, right? I'm not, I'm not equal to Brad Pitt in many ways, right? Like he's superior in many ways. I'm superior in some ways. I could probably do crypto better than Brad Pitt, but, uh, you know, it's it pays to be a better actor, right? So, you know, people aren't people aren't equal, and this idea that there needs to be this equality of outcomes is based on a lie there the people aren't equal there are differences in people why those differences exist it could be a number of reasons and, and depending on what the difference is you'd have to study it but you know this this new york thing he's going to ruin the lives of a bunch of poor asian kids is what's going to happen because right now there's a it's what 70 percent asian a lot of those, and half of the school is poor. Higher. So let's just assume that, like, that means thirty-five percent of the Asians are poor. If of, of the of the community is poor Asians, let's just assume it's evenly distributed. So they're all gonna basically lose because the the distribution that he wants is is gonna kick most of those poor Asians out. And then you know what will become the elite schools. The schools in Koreatown and Chinatown, and the and the magnet middle schools, the the uh, middle schools for gifted students. I mean, those will become the elite schools because again, elite is where the elite kids are. And if you're driving them out, if it means nothing to be able to get into that school, then I'm not going to send my kid there because they're not yep. going to be getting the education that they should be getting that they're being promised. It's not a gifted school. It, right. Everything about this, this is, this is, this is, um, it's just so indicative of what's wrong with SJWism, with SJW ideology. Um, they are looking at outcome, like you said, equality of outcome. 
quality of outcome. They're not looking at a quality of opportunity. If you want to look at a quality of opportunity, then figure out why. See, they don't want to investigate why the test scores are so different. They don't actually right. want to know. Um, so one of the things de Blasio is complaining about is that there's 600 uh, public middle schools in New York City. And that the majority, like half of the students that get into these elite high schools come from only 21 of those middle schools, 21 out of 600. We'll figure out wow. what the other 580 are doing wrong. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or what are those 21 doing right? What are like, yeah, what are they that? doing right? And get, and so, and most of those schools are in uh, neighborhoods that have high population of Korean and Chinese immigrants, or they are already, they are gifted, you know, middle schools. Um, it's not about money. That's the other thing he's trying to say. It's about money. So, so he's got two different things he's doing. So one thing he's he's already doing this and he doesn't need approval to do this. It's already happening. He's got this thing called the discovery program where um, they've already set aside 4% uh, of the slots at these schools have been given to people who don't pass the standardized test, who don't even qualify to be there. He's right. expanding that from 4% to 20%. Right. That's a huge percentage. So from now on, they're, it's going to be 20% of the total seats are going to be given out to kids who didn't even, don't even have basic proficiency in math and English. Right. Um, the second thing he wants to do, which he needs approval from the state uh, legislator to do, legislature to do, is he wants to get rid of the standardized test altogether. He wants to get rid of the SHSAT, and he wants to make these schools, he wants to, the, um, you get in by, uh, he wants to take the top 7% at each middle school, at each of these 600 middle schools. The top 7% at each of these middle schools is going to vary so much. That that's why it's called a standardized test, because it's standardized and everyone takes the same test. It's You can't say, I'm going to pull the top 7% at this school and I'm going to pull this top here when you have such different levels of high, high achieve, of achievement. So like you yep. said, Carter, it's like, why don't you go and look at the middle schools that are doing something right and figure out what you can do at the other schools? Another thing, it's not about so they, a lot of discussion. There's been a lot of discussion around the test prep issue. And like, oh, well, rich people can spend a lot of money on test prep. Yes, that's true. I used to teach SAT prep. We had two types of classes. We had the classes where you had a lot of wealthy parents who were paying for the kids to be there and those kids couldn't care less. And then we had the classes that we offered um, in the inner city to kids who were less privileged um, at a reduced, a severely reduced rate. And those kids wanted to be there and their test scores were better. And so I'm, I don't, I, they're already, New York city is already spending millions of dollars on free test prep and targeting these, like it, it, it's not about the, it's not about the money. If it was, these schools wouldn't be 70% Asian. They would be 70% rich people or white people. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like it's, it's not a, well, it's clearly not about test prep and, and rich no. people having test prep be, because, because the school is such a high percentage already of, of poor kids. Like that's, it's a, he can't possibly make that argument rationally. I, but I think one of the issues here is, um, I mean, I always like, look at the kind of broader philosophic context of things. And and what I really see here is destruction of, of value. Like, I, I think it's, you know, Ayn Rand used this phrase called hatred of the good for being the good. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think being smart is morally good. I don't think there's they're not related. 
uh, being smart might be advantageous in certain ways and, and actually disadvantageous sometimes depending on how high your IQ goes. But um, it is a, uh, it is a, let's say socially desirable thing, at least at, at, at the level of high schools and, and kind of in the culture you want, you want to be smart, but this idea that um, we need to have a certain makeup at elite schools, I don't think it's actually about helping the, the other kids. Uh, I actually think it's resentment that there are smart kids and we need to tear them down in, in some way. Because, you know, the best way, you and I talked about this, we were both in, quote, gifted programs as kids in schools. And both, I, both of us went to public school. We're both in gifted programs. And we both had a similar experience, I think. Well, not exactly, but I had this experience of being a in a gifted program that was then, um, because of parental pressure, opened up to a whole bunch of kids. And it was, you know, from when it started to when uh, I left it, at, you know, when I left that school, um, it was a very different experience, right? When, when it was just a couple kids, it was a lot more individual attention, but it was also much more challenging, and I learned a lot. And then when they kind of opened it up because everyone protested that their kid wasn't in it, you know, they were above average kids in there, but it got bored for the few of us that were in that were had been in there before um, because they had to talk down, like they had to ratchet down the challenges and uh, make it more accessible. And that's a challenge with education generally, which is why these elite schools exist. You want to have a school if you want to if you want to. Uh, foster achievement with the top kids, you put them only with each other in these best schools. And I think that, I think that we're just undervaluing how much really smart people can make a difference. Um, but really, really smart people, if we help them achieve, they're the, those are the kind of people that cure diseases and uh, invent iPhones and do amazing things that benefit all of us in the long run. And create run. jobs. And exactly. And so it's this kind of like weird envy thing. I was, I always, back in the day, Bill Gates was vilified. Now everyone likes him because he's just sitting around giving money away. But back in the day, he was, he was vilified. And I always scratched my head about that. And I was like, well, the fact that Bill Gates is a billionaire isn't hurting me. It's actually helping me. Like, damn, this, this computer is cheap because of Bill Gates and the software is cheap. Be because of Bill Gates, like I can do a lot more because of Bill Gates. The fact that he has, you know, huge mansions and private helicopters and planes like that doesn't hurt me. This isn't a pizza and he's eaten too many slices of it. This is like <laughs> wealth is created and he's creating wealth that I'm getting to uh, take advantage of because there's this brilliant guy who succeeded. And um, I think we just don't recognize there there's this hidden cost that every kid that we kick out of that school and replace with someone whose skin color we think is preferable uh, is a potential loss of a Bill Gates. That's my rant. That's very interesting. The, the resentment thing and wanting to destroy it. And but I have a question for you because as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, so what are all these other, uh, you know, fields of competition and are there any others that we tear down as well? So if you look at athletic ability, I don't, we don't tear it down. We're not saying, oh, there needs to be this exact proportion of, 
you know, men and women and different and racial makeup. And we're not trying to, right. you know, we're, we're still judging athletic ability on athletic ability. Good um, point. Good point. same thing. I think I would say same thing. I would argue the same with musical ability, but what about artistic ability? I think we're destroying that. I think, I think artistic ability is one area where if you look at, um, postmodernist art, you start to see this influx of like, we don't want people at art schools with actual talent. My friend dropped out. She's completely gifted, um, works a lot with oil and chalk. And she dropped out because she wasn't doing stuff like piss Christ. You know what I mean? Where the, people right. are just like urinating on Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Like, like that there's a sandwich <laughs> crumbs in a you know cigarette butt smushed into your painting because you're a slob. Right. So what do you think about that idea that maybe that's another area, another field where we, I, I, uh, I mean, I don't know. This is fascinating, right? Because um, it might be a combination of this uh, tearing down achievement combined with, uh, I would say racism against uh, whites and now Asians. Right. And so, where that's coming from, I'm not sure because you know I would say the reason it's not implemented in sports is because it would negatively affect black people, right? I mean that's the reason, mm -hmm. right? If if the NBA was full of a bunch of whites and Asians, you would have this. In fact, in in hockey there has been some complaint about the number of whites in hockey. Really? Right? <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and there are very few blacks in hockey there's like very few african-americans or african-canadians or whoever's you know what their origin is there's very few blacks in hockey and partly it's because it's an expensive sport to do and and so it's um when you're young so there is a an economic disadvantage if, if there's minority groups who on average uh, don't have as many resources but you know there, there was a push but i haven't seen it it hasn't been to the extent that there is you know with this kind of stuff but i think it's because hockey is just not as important to people they don't care about it um mm -hmm. i don't know the by the way your friend jason says check out feminist screaming feminist scream singing art i you know jason i would rather not but uh <laughs> thanks for the recommendation <laughs> oh oh gross so, oh, can mind. we get to that so i at the heart of what we're kind of touching on is something that you tweeted we were going to talk about, so we should because we're halfway through the show. Oh, okay. Um, which is this um, Peggy McIntosh's what's it? White privilege unpacking the invisible knapsack. Uh, what so, a what a pile of shit. Do you want to talk about? Do you want to give an overview of this for people? Well, Peggy McIntosh is credited with coining the term and popularizing the term white privilege. Um, I'm sure people were using it before her, but she's the one who has gotten the credit, which I think is kind of darkly humorous. Anyway, my friend pointed out that W.E.B. Uh, Dubois was the one who first kind of um, uh, laid out some of these concepts. He talked a lot about the psychological wage, which was about, like this idea that um, white workers benefited by aligning themselves with the white people in charge rather than... Um, coming together in solidarity with workers of color. And so he laid the groundwork for a lot of this, but I was like, but <laughs> he's too but the brilliant. The, hmm? the rich white lady gets the credit for it. Right. And he's too brilliant to have ever written something this terrible. Like, <laughs> like this is. That's true. This is, I mean, you know, you can read it. Well, I think we have the link somewhere uh, or we will. 
it like first and foremost, it looks like a poorly written 4chan post, but it's <laughs> there's nothing academic about it. It is um, a a bunch of how she feels about things, how she perceives other people feel about things, her perception about how things might work for other people. But it's important to keep in mind, Peggy McIntosh wasn't just a white woman. She was a rich white woman. And I don't think anyone would deny that there are special privileges that you get when you're wealthy. Certainly, you have a much easier life. And it may be that she's conflating some of these. But she has this, her quote, knapsack. So she, she, she says that uh, whites are walking around with this invisible knapsack with these privileges in them. And she has a list of 50. We're not going to go through all 50, but we can pick out a couple that might be related to this particular topic. But, um, you know, they are, they're things like, I mean, I'll well, just read number one. Well, I wanted to pick out one before we get to about this. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, pick that one. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it relates to this topic or not, but yeah, you were just about to read number one. Number one is I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. And I think there's another one in here too about like, I can turn on the news or I can turn on the television and see people of my race. That's a majority privilege. If it's any kind of privilege, that's majority privilege. If I'm in China and I'm Chinese, I'm going to see people who look like me on the television. Like that, that is not uh, specific to being white. It's about where yeah, you live obviously. and who's right. predominantly living there. What are the what are the percentages of people who live there? It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, and look, my first reaction to number one, which is this, uh, I can I can arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I mean, my initial reaction was like, haven't you driven through like Chinatown, Koreatown, like different like people seem seem to self segregate often in major cities so that they can hang out with people of their own race most of the time. If and they want to. If they want to. And, you know, can like can you always do that? Of course not, right? If you're the only person of some, let's say there's some race we've never heard of and there's one surviving person and they move anywhere in the world, well, yeah, I guess they're kind of at a disadvantage, but I'm at a disadvantage because I'm short and I've got other problems in my life. Like, we all have disadvantages is that do you blame the rest of the culture for the fact that you happen to be some minority that means that you can't see people who look exactly like you everywhere you go like and and who the hell cares what people look like in the first place like i don't you know i have a kid she didn't and when we played at the playground when she was young like she didn't even as far as i could tell notice races of people or differences of people were not an issue like for her it was like that's a person not a cat like okay that's the categorization there wasn't there wasn't like oh that's a this kind of person and that's a that kind of person and blah, blah, blah. like i i don't this is just race obsessed frankly but well the thing about that with children not uh recognizing race if they're in the public schools they're they're being taught to i mean you have to there there are books out there about like how to raise white children in a un racially unjust world. And, you know, and this one book, uh, a friend of mine texted me a picture of from the library. I can't remember the title. It was something like that. It was written by a white woman. And it was all about how to, to tell your white kids about toxic whiteness or what have you, white privilege. Um, but one of the things it said was, you know, a lot of times little children will say that what they don't see race or they don't understand, they, they didn't see people according to race. And it's like, they're wrong. <laughs> what? What? 
<laughs> I don't know. I just think that's kind of hilarious. It's the exact opposite of the uh, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, I can have a dream speech. Like, I have a dream that one day we will see everyone according to the color of their skin. <clears throat> yeah, it's weird. And, and in fact, one thing that's related to this, this is not about school, but um, it is about quotas and affirmative action. I'm going to read number 35 from the knapsack. Okay. She said, I can take it. This is one of the ones that I just think is ridiculously funny to me. She says, I can take a job with an affirmative action employer without having my coworkers on the job suspect that I got it because of my race. That's because of you, Peggy. It's because of people <laughs> wanting racial quotas and affirmative action. If they didn't exist, no one would suspect that you got it because of your race, right? It, it's it's like the left creating a problem and then pointing at it as evidence of like the problem. This is why we like need these. Things. Like it's like you created the freaking problem. It's a circular argument. <laughs> it's I mean it's it's like worse than a circular argument. It's like I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it's like uh. You know, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of a great analogy, but it's, it's like literally, she's literally creating the problem and then complaining about it and saying that she needs to create the problem because there's the problem that she created. It's like, <laughs> who this with any kind of critical eye and goes, no, oh, that makes sense. Like, I don't. Well, the, and this is what this paper, again, for anybody watching who hasn't read it, you should really look it up and go read it because this is the foundation of most of um, like the critical race theory or the, the all these terms that are becoming more mainstream that you're starting to hear. Um, they originate from this. I mean, Peggy McIntosh also wrote a lot of stuff about sexism. And, and even in this article, she bases a lot of it on, you know, understanding on male privilege. She probably wrote an unpacking a male privilege knapsack article that I just don't know about. But <laughs> she probably she does yeah. start this with like her her this this she says explicitly this kind of stemmed from her thinking about uh, male privilege. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a male knapsack somewhere where uh, you got you got a lot of knapsacks, Carter. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know, but it's uh, she also had just has things that <laughs> to me were just totally weird like number 17 is i can talk with my mouth full and not have people put this down to my color i'm like i've never what what are you talking about i've never heard of this before like what the hell it's okay here's not... another here's another one that's interesting where you said you know you create the problem and then you say look at this problem um this is sort of like that and then it's like number 21 i am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. Well, she wrote this in the 80s. Yeah. She wrote this in the 80s. Look at what a difference those ensuing years have made because now that's all I hear is people saying, you know, as a queer black woman and then and then speaking for an entire group or and I'm like, you who elected you to speak? Why can't you just speak for yourself? It doesn't carry more weight, but there's this idea that it does. And um you know, as a woman, okay, I'm just a woman. <laughs> I'm not women. And it, and it, I, I get so sick of hearing people say that without even questioning why they're saying it. You know, I have a, I have a friend online who he's always pointing this out. He's like, look, I'm a vet. I'm not online. I'm like, as a vet, let me tell you what, you know, army guys think. No, you're just one person. And, and I think it shows a lack of, uh, kind of, a 
a trust in your own argument to have to cushion it with this sort of authority that you're speaking on behalf of a group. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Because people who have good arguments uh, don't have to like use any kind of argument from authority or like intimidation because sometimes that's kind of a little bit of an intimidating thing. Like, well, I'm part of this group, so you don't want to piss us off. So as this part of the group, right? you better listen to what I'm saying. But it's, uh, yeah, people with good arguments don't care about that. Somebody did that, just a quick side note tangent. When Jordan Peterson came to speak in Austin, I saw on Twitter, somebody tweeted at the venue and they were like, how could you book someone like, they're, they're like, as an, Austin or as a female music lover in Austin, you know, this is da 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 da. And I'm like, a female music lover in Austin, so am I. Who I didn't elect you. Yeah. <laughs> like, shut yeah. up. Just say I don't like him. <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh it's pretty weird. The the actually the other one that I wanted to bring up because um wait, where is it? It's it's about she mentions the IRS. Hold on, let me do a quick yeah, here it is. She says and I want to bring this up because there's this is a fallacy, and and uh, I think it's important for people to know. Number twenty five is if a traffic cop pulls me over, or if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. Now, um, first of all, uh, if the IRS is audit auditing your tax return, you're probably conservative. We've already established that. Like that's that's who they seem to be going after. I mean, there's a whole scandal you can look up with uh, what was her name, Lois Lerer. Um, but okay, but there's this traffic cop thing. And I looked up some stats on this because this is a, this is a common fallacy that, um, it, this stems from, there was this, uh, brouhaha in New Jersey on the New Jersey turnpike where New Jersey troopers were getting accused of disproportionately pulling over black drivers. And the argument, and, uh, the, the argument was basically, um, Look, blacks are only X percentage of the population, but you're pulling them over for speeding in a much higher percentage. Therefore, uh, the New Jersey troopers are racist and they are profiling. Well, the New Jersey troopers did something really interesting, and, I'm, and this study doesn't get talked about too much, but they did something really interesting in response. They turned around, and, and to the horror, I'm sure, of the people accusing them of being racist, they turned around and said to the attorney general, hey, can you do a, do me a favor? Study speeding behavior on the turnpike. And if it turns out that blacks are, because before you just say like, so let, let me back up. Statistically, you can't just say, well, let's say blacks are 13% of the population, therefore they should be 13% of the speeders. Well, it depends on how often they speed, right? If blacks speed disproportionately, you would expect more being pulled over more. If they speed less, you would expect them to be pulled over less. So the New Jersey trooper said, look, please go do this study. And if it turns out that we are disproportionately pulling over blacks, we'll take our lumps and we will do, you know, we'll reorganize, we'll do, we'll, you know, make a big effort to fix this. And we'll admit that, we, you know, this has been racist. Um, so please go study this. So what they did was they... Um, so at this time here, blacks made up 16% of the drivers on the turnpike. Um, and so what they did was they basically had cameras and they just, uh, they measured the speed of cars and they took pictures of the drivers. 
And then they distributed the pictures of the drivers without knowledge of the speed that those people were going to an uh, in independent panel. And they determined what race the person seemed to look like, right? Which is, which is valid because that's the only way a cop could, could preferentially do that either, is just by looking, right? So they determined the race. And, um, and then they went back and correlated, okay, what are the percentage of the speeders? And it turns out that, um, let's see, let me read this. Uh, blacks make up 16% of the drivers on the turnpike, but they make up 25% of the speeders on the turnpike. Um, and so the result of this is that black drivers speed twice as much. This is only on the New Jersey turnpike. Black drivers speed twice as much as white drivers and speed at reckless levels even more. And as it turns out, blacks are actually stopped less than their speeding behavior would predict. They're, they are only 23% of those stopped. So as it turned out, there was no profiling. There was no disproportionate pulling over of blacks. But no one ever cites this. And they continue with this kind of perception, which Peggy McIntosh uh, references here in number 25, which is like this, oh, well, if I'm pulled over, it's because I'm black. Uh, That's no. really, I mean, that reminds me, Carter, of the, um, I mean, the current narrative about uh, being more likely to be met with lethal force at the hands of a police officer um, if you're black, which is not true. And th there have been numerous studies which have shown it's not true. The most recent, which was conducted at Harvard um, by, by a black guy who fully expected to find the opposite. And he was surprised, you know, that that's, that's not the case, that you're more likely to be met with lethal force at the hands of a police officer if you're white. And, but here's my question is, why do you think the powers that be, whether that's academic, academics like professors who are teaching this stuff or um sjw activists you know these activists who are in the media who are pushing these narratives why do they want people to be so afraid why do they want people to think that they live in a world that's so completely set against them because of their race or because of their sex or because they because they they definitely want us to feel like we're um Look, as a woman, they definitely want us to feel like <laughs> we're being uh, we're the victim of of some some uh, nefarious, you know, misogynistic society that's set against us. And and I think they do the same with race. And why do you think that is? Well, um, you know what? I want to actually quote uh, quote Groucho Marx, but I can't find the quote right here to answer your question. But I think it's I'm gonna I'm gonna look while I'm talking. I think it's. Um, predominantly a variant. Oh, here it is. Okay, ready? Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Uh, so that would be Groucho Marx's answer. <laughs> I like but, it. Uh, I think that, that maybe um, more use, it's a funny answer, but I think the more maybe useful answer is if you if you look at, you know, we've talked before about uh, the, the relationship between postmodernists and um, Marxist ideology. And I think a lot of people's eyes gloss over when you say Marxist ideology, because it sounds like it's this uh, boogeyman that we're kind of making up, but it's not. You just, it's, you know, professors and, and, um, and people, in, most of the people in universities, uh, most of the professors that are on the left would, would openly admit uh, they are, have at least Marxist tendencies, if not they're outright Marxists. And um, the strategy of the, so the, 
the prediction of Marxism, Marx's prediction was that capitalism would fall apart because of uh, class struggle, right? And he was very concerned about classism, which is weird because he was in the upper class and treated his maid like shit, but that's a separate issue. Um, so he's very concerned about classism. And what happened was um, it that that didn't happen. Like capitalist countries, yeah, there was starting to be a gap between the rich and the poor, but like there wasn't this kind of uprising of the lower class to overthrow uh, the upper class, the bourgeois. And, and so this, this was disappointing to the Marxists. And of, the, of course, then there was the Soviet Union failure. And I think what happened was, and I think there's actually uh, literature, I think they said this explicitly, they kind of said, okay, well, we have to create some kind of division. B remember that um, fundamentally, there's, if, if you want to kind of really essentialize Americanism versus Marxism, and I'm going to call it Americanism, uh, mm -hmm. Is, there's not, not really a better word because America was a unique nation, right? America was really about a very small, limited government um, right from the get-go. You kind of leave people alone, uh, laissez-faire-ish, you know, not pure capitalism, but kind of laissez-faire. I mean, there were some issues, right? And, you know, obviously slavery, there's some major issues, but compared to other states and other forms of government, it was much less authoritarian. And and communism and socialism is is the epitome of authoritarianism. It's either ruled by a dictator or ruled by the mob, but you're ruled very clearly. And um, because because uh, the kind of Marxist predictions about capitalism didn't work, but there were still a lot of people, uh, specifically in academia, who really wanted Marxism to work, they thought that they would have to kind of manufacture some of this struggle to kind of create class division and create division among groups in America in order to destroy this, this kind of laissez-faire-ish American uh, system. And to do that, they, they realized, okay, well, classism isn't working as well because people feel like there's class mobility. And this kind of idea that you achieve the American dream kind of destroys some of this kind of classism. But um, we can uh, have, set, we can pit sexes against each other and races against each other and at the end of the day, I think it's all about political power. Um, if if you are of the mindset of kind of small government and you know, kind of the traditional Americanism, there's not a lot of political power to be sought. Like like, who cares if you're in charge, right? I mean, back in the day when America was founded, it like going to Congress was this part time job that people hated to do, and like they were like. <laughs> You can go home and like no one wanted to be a fucking congressman. They had stuff to do back at home, right? But now it's this, it's it's the it's the ring of power, right? It's mm -hmm. uh you know it's this uh very, very important um prize to win. And to win it, you've got to have uh constant fear, you've got to have groups fighting each other, there's gotta be uh like constant crisis, right? The you know. Again, I don't want to get into the global warming crap because I think there's it's more nuanced than just it's this or that. However, if you'll notice how it's talked about all the time, it's always alarmist language. It's always like, you know, we're going to all be underwater in two years and, you know, all these predictions, which are always wrong. It doesn't mean that there, there's no science behind it. And again, I don't want to get into it, but the predictions are always over the top and scare tactic, right? And the same is true with... Um, getting the, the, the African-American community all ginned up about like, oh, you're, it's, you know, it's racism and blah, 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 and this is what's keeping you down, which is demonstrably untrue because uh, if it was still a, a leftover racism from slavery, they would be doing better now than they were 60 years ago, but they, weren't, they were doing better 60 years ago. So 
something has gotten worse and it's not slavery because slavery happened 150 years ago. Well, so Carter, so that that's actually an interesting point because um, to take it back to the first thing we were talking about, the, um, the uh, schools for the gifted in the New York public high schools, they had higher black and Latino enrollment in the 80s and 90s than they do now. So what changed? What changed with the education in the middle schools? You know, what, why is it, that's where de Blasio should be putting his attention is what did we do wrong since the eighties and nineties so that the numbers of kids who are passing this test is now lower in these communities. So I don't know. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, no, And I think um, um, this is why people use this phrase uh, urban plantation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because I think largely it's the welfare state, um, you know, the uh, this this kind of ruining of the black family, right? So we don't know a lot about um, we don't know a lot about what raises IQ in children, right? But uh, and and kind of raises their likelihood. We don't even say IQ, just likelihood to succeed too, right? We don't know a lot of ways to kind of permanently do that, but we do know ways to damage it, right? So. Um, Absent fathers, not good for kids, right? Um, hitting kids, not good for them, right? Um, there's some dietary things, not good for them. And I, you know, I think if you look at the black family in America over the past 60 years, you've seen a dramatic decline in uh, the, the structure that's necessary for kids to succeed. And I think part of that is un inarguably as a result of the, the welfare state. And so I really just view it as, you know, if you keep in mind, you know, the, the Democratic Party, and by the way, I don't want to blame just Democrats because Republicans are horrible about all this crap as well, typically. But mm -hmm. if you look at the Democratic Party in their history, they were the, the KKK was the kind of military arm of the Democratic Party. The Democrats were the pro-slavery party. The Democrats were the ones who opposed the Civil Rights Acts. The Democrats were the ones who instituted all the Jim Crow laws. Democrats have historically been very racist. And, you know, this kind of big switch, this big flip happened when the Democrats, I believe, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but they basically decided, well, we need this black vote because the blacks are never voting for us and there's getting to be more and more blacks. They're continually to vote Republican. We're going to lose power. And so how do we keep power? Well, we got to we got to do something that we a, a we have to convince them that racism is a problem and B, we have to fix it for them. And and we have to convince them they're disadvantaged and that they need us. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to we're going to get them on the public dole. We're going to give them welfare in the inner cities. We're going to institute this welfare state. Um, there's a quote that I think is unconfirmed about uh, LBJ, uh, Lyndon, uh, President Lyndon Johnson. But um, I'll have those N words voting Democrat for 200 years. That's the quote. It's not clear whether he actually said that, but that's the rumor mm -hmm. and disproven or proven. But, you know, it was it was when this the welfare state was being expanded under LBJ and again Democrat. Um, the idea was, you know, give free stuff. Tell them that the the, in, the the world is against them and the institutions are against them. Tell them that there's no way to succeed without the white man's help. That the powerful Democrat white man's help. You'll never succeed if the white man doesn't give you stuff. And then proceed to hook them on welfare. And you know, there's a huge problem on welfare with it creates broken families. It encourages children out of wedlock and more children than um, probably you should, you can support 
uh, normally, and you get stuck in welfare. Once you're in it, there's this gap where if you go get a job, you actually end up getting less money and benefits from a typical job. I think the gap is like several tens of thousands of dollars. So you have to go get a really, really high paying job to get off of welfare to make it worth it. So it's just, it's a trap for the African American community. The first person I heard talking about this was See, when I was in SJW, I was in a bubble. We've talked about this before, but there were certain things that I just knew to be true because they were accepted as truth and gospel in the SJW world. But I didn't really know those things to be true. I had never investigated those things. And they do a good job of keeping you isolated in this one set of beliefs, in this one echo chamber, and they make certain people off limits. So you won't go and read them and you won't actually investigate what they've said. Um, and so one of those people is this uh, black conservative, Larry Elder, who I had never really listened to before. Um, there are a number of people I'd never listened to before until I started, you know, kind of opening my cage a bit. <laughs> but um, Larry Elder was the first person I heard talking about this destruction of black families. But, you know, it's not just it's white families as well. I, I never used to. Um, there were certain things I would hear about when I was in the SJW left that I thought were ridiculous. And, you know, one of those was I would hear, oh, there's a war on traditional families or a war on the family, right? I'm like, that's so absurd. You know, these people don't like progress and we should be able, you know, women are free now and we should be able to get divorces and, and pursue our own happiness and career and blah, 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 blah. But now when I look back and, and Larry Elder was talking about this too, there's, there is this, seems to be there's this attack on the family unit um, or, and if it's not a concerted effort, it's just that for whatever reason, things we've progressed in a lot of ways. It doesn't mean that there aren't negative repercussions to some of those things. And so, um, there are a lot more single moms now uh, white and black than there were in the fifties and sixties. Um, but it has disproportionately affected the black families and, and like you were saying, I've read studies about, you know, one of the biggest predictors for future success is growing up in a home with both your parents. Um, another thing Larry Elder said, which is that uh, he was talking about a study they did where they asked people, they asked the kind of wealthy liberal elite um, and they asked poor people, do you think a person would have decide to have, do you think poor people ever decide to have another kid so they can get more welfare money? And the wealthy elite were like no and the poor people were like yeah <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do that. yeah that was larry elder i heard talking about that if, if you guys anybody watching is not familiar with him i would say well the first thing i saw of his was an interview he did with dave rubin and that was really an interesting interview very eye-opening um uh, one other thing oh you said so many interesting things i'm sorry we're running out of time now because oh, i wanted I to that's yeah. Okay. But no, it was I you answered my question and I I don't know, I think you're right. This idea of uh the Democratic Party owning people, well, you see a lot of that right now with walk away. So I we've talked about this briefly before. That's where I met Gracie um was because uh, a number of people who, a number of us who have walked away did an interview together and um um there is this sense of, well, so first of all, the, the mainstream media started to make fun of walk away and tried to pretend like it's all Russian bots, um, that it's not real people that completely ignoring the thousands of testimonial videos of people who are leaving. Um, and then, and then it's almost like they don't care that they're losing us 
they just double down on insulting us. Like if, if you're just, you're being told that people are leaving the party and instead of trying to find out why they're leaving and maybe get them back, you're calling them uh, stupid. You're calling them liars. You're calling them trolls. Uh, in the case of Kanye West, they, they called him, you know, racial slurs and they oh. insulted his intelligence um, in the past month or well, since the, uh, more recent than the past month, since the midterms. I don't know if you've seen this, Carter, but there just been a rash of op-eds about um, kind of scolding black men for voting for Republicans and and also oh, scolding women. Scolding white women. Yeah. Have you seen any of these headlines? The black men voting? No, I haven't. So here's one. Um, I just pulled some up because I was looking at these the other day. A number of these. Here's one. Boston Globe. Memo to black men, stop voting Republican. <laughs> and then and then the subheadline is, why do any black men vote for the GOP? As if that's, pff, why would you vote for the GOP? Um, here's one, Washington Post, analysis. What's up with all those black men who voted for the Republicans? Um, and then, of course, the one about, about women, you know, uh, like there's just a ton of them about white women. Most white women are very happy with white supremacy. This explains why they vote for Republicans because clearly Republicans are white supremacists. Like um, white women who vote against the GOP aren't voting against their own interests because their interest is white supremacy. Um, the, but but yeah, just a number of the, I'll stop reading them, but, but it's very much this hateful, like we own you. How dare you not vote with us? And instead of trying to figure out why you left, we're going to we're going to call you names and shame you. Right. And I think it's because um, all the left has in terms of arguments. So I, I, I really believe this, especially after you've seen like socialism has been tried and and always failed all over the world. I mean, and everyone can always argue like, well, that's not actual socialism would do this other thing. Whatever. But there's lots of socialism that's been tried and failed and in communism. And all they have left, they don't have good arguments in general. All they have left is the uh, is pitting groups against each other and and get, getting their emotion, getting them all emotionally riled up. And all they have left is identity politics. And so when you go against that identity politics, when you're a black man and you vote against the Democrats or or, or whatever. Um, or if you're a white woman and you vote for for the Republicans as well, you you need to be vilified as because you're you're going against this this concept like women should be Democrats and black men should be Democrats. Only white men should be Republicans and only rich white men should be Republicans. And they're all misogynistic, racist patriarchs, right? And and that's that's Republican. And anyone else who votes for them is is, uh, is a traitor to the identity politics cause. Um, and that that's kind of how I view that. Yeah. It's, it's the, you're more of a traitor. You're seen as like we talked about before, you're, you're an apostate because now, you know, you're one of the chosen ones. And this is why they hate Candace Owens so much. I mean, talk about somebody who walked away and talked away very, walked away while talking very loudly. <laughs> um, yeah. She, and she's, yeah, she's been very damaging to them and they, and they hate her um, because she's one of the high, you know, like Gracie was talking about, it functions like a religion and 
you know, the more of the quote marginalized boxes you can check off, the more like a priest you are within the movement, the more authority you have. And so here's one of the priests of the movement, someone who has the ability to be a priest who's like, peace out. Like, I'm not, this isn't for me anymore. And they hate, they hate you. I I mean, even just um, online, the, the reception, just in conversations I have with strangers, the reception that I get when I say, you know, well, I've, I've been a life, I'm a lifelong Democrat until this past month. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've, I'm still liberal, but I didn't vote Democratic this month. And they'd get so angry. Like, it's as if you've, it's not just politics for them. It's a matter of good and evil. And then they, yeah. they feel like you went over to the evil side or something. They've been convinced that it's this good and evil thing. But, yeah. Well, I mean, look, in, in fairness, sometimes politics is good and evil. And, uh, but just not in this case. And they don't really have good arguments uh, for what they're doing. Their arguments are basically identity politics. I mean, so we, we have a, this final question maybe before we wrap up the show, but it's it's kind of a good wrap-up question. So uh, I'm going to ask it. So um, let's see. I wonder if there is a leadership. So let's, yeah, okay, sorry. I wonder if there is a leadership behind the SJW movement. In other words, who is pushing the cultural war? What's your view, Carrie and Carter? Why don't you go first? Huh. I I mean I think it's like a what what is that phrase? It's a, a multi-headed snake. I I don't necessarily think there's a leader. There's no a leader. <laughs> uh but there are lots of different leaders maybe, I put it that way in different areas. So, um I mean I think I think it started with the uh the Frankfurt school, right? It's like it started with actual Marxists who like you said, it's like well, we have to find another way to keep people uh divided into groups and it's not going to be class so let's let's take our ideology and let's just change some things and let's make it about identity instead and about race and sex and so those academics who came to the u.s and from the frankfurt school and started teaching this form of marxism i mean that's where it started so if there is a leader i would say it's in the past um, and now this is just a beast of its own. I, it's like a virus. I think it's it's something that people catch. <laughs> it's weird because I've had since the election of 2016, I've been going in one direction, of course, and trying to figure things out. But I've had friends who've gone in the other direction. And I'm like, oh, gosh, like I won't have seen them for a while. And then I see them or I see something they wrote. And I'm like, oh, they caught it. <laughs> like, Oh, oh gosh, <laughs> they came down with it after all this time. Why? Why them, God? Um, but no, I really do believe it's something that's catching. Uh, one other quick thing to add to that, and it goes to something you said, Carter, about the different groups. I have a friend who um, he knows a lot more about Occupy Wall Street than I do. And his belief is that uh, that identity politics was purposefully used to uh, end Occupy Wall Street and to end the 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 positive, um, I guess, progression of that movement and shining a light on, you know, economic disparity that that because he was like within the movement within Occupy Wall Street, everything fell apart because it all became about this intersectional infighting about identity. And so everybody had a common goal, but then it was suddenly like, no, you're not, you know, let's you're not elevating the race issue. You're not elevating the gender issue. You're not. And so then it all broke apart. <laughs> like, Interesting. I mean, the Occupy movement is maybe a, another conversation at some point, because I think there's a lot of validity to the concerns of the Occupy movement. Um, but it's just, mis it's just um, without really any kind of coherent solution. Um, and 
without really understanding the root of the problem, but I think a lot of the concerns voiced by the Occupy movement are completely valid. Um, and, and I would double down a little bit on what you said about, I don't think there's a leader in, in SJWism either. Um, I, I like the virus analogy. Um, I've, I've, used, I've used that analogy before. I also like the cancer analogy. Um, I, think, I think for me, it really comes down to something a little bit more fundamental, which is any large government kind of, and obviously Marxism is the largest possible kind of government, right? Any large government kind of attitude is really driven, I think, by um, you know, not not by the the low level supporters, but by the, the kind of leaders of any any of that, or the, the aspirational leaders at least. It's really driven by an addiction to power and a pursuit of power. And if I think this is it's kind of and I don't mean to be depressing about it, but it's kind of a natural phenomenon, and I wouldn't expect anything else uh, as as government. You know, if you want power. You need government to grow. And so if you want government to grow, you need problems for government to solve. Like you need to, you mm -hmm. need people to feel like there's a line in um, V for Vendetta by the, I forget the, uh, Adam Suttler, I think is the name of the 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 leader in this horrible <clears throat> version of England in, in the movie V for Vendetta. But he's, there's that one point where he's screaming at people and he says, you know, he's, he's talking about the propaganda that they have to, uh, the government needs to put out and he's saying we need to convince people or show people why they need us. And he's like, we, they need to see why they need us. And so he was he wanting to put all this propaganda about about problems here and problems there, and this is falling apart and blah blah blah. And I think, you know, the small government, it's hard to be a small government advocate because you're basically saying like, hey, let's just get together and be left alone and not have anyone really do much to us, <laughs> right? And that's hard to sell because uh, problems are like, like selling fear and that you need an authority figure to fix problems is a much easier. Um, I think it's a much easier way to get power than by saying, Hey, uh, I want to be president so that I can leave you the fuck alone, which is like, well, that's not a, you basically like the, the ideal libertarian president would basically dismantle most of the government and like neuter himself. So that's, that's not a good way to get power and it's not a good, and it's a hard argument to make to people. That's like, Hey, don't you want to just be left alone? Cause that's not, I think most people it's easier to be like, Hey, isn't this a problem? I can solve it for you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of a, just a natural tendency that this is what's going to inevitably happen. And it's why the government never gets smaller. It always gets bigger. And until, you know, I'm not to be a party pooper, but I mean, government likely will just get larger and larger and larger until it falls apart under a revolution of some kind or um, actually, you know, institutes a different kind of either more explicitly socialist or Marxist state that falls apart or whatever. But it's very hard to turn the, the kind of ever expanding behemoth of government around um, because just psychologically people who seek power need the government to be bigger. And so they need all these problems. It's the same thing at colleges. It's with the, the bloating bureaucracy, these SJW positions. Um, this is why college is so expensive now. You've got to pay for 100 people on the gender and diversity and anti-bias initiative force. Do you know what I mean? Like all these bullshit jobs, pardon my French, 
Um, no, no. It, there's entire departments of bullshit now. Of just bloat. Yeah. Yep. Well, on that note. Wait, let's uh, leave it on something positive. Before we sign off or what? What'd you say? Uh, I don't want your last word to be bullshit. So do you have any uh, any final <laughs> things you want to add before we sign off? Because I think we're eh, a little bit over. Uh, no, I've enjoyed this conversation. I think we have a lot of things we can talk about in future episodes just because I was taking notes about stuff you're saying. And um, it, I don't know. It's very interesting. Oh, one thing. I, I know I keep extending this, but if people want to read about Peggy McIntosh, can we put the links in the in the video? Yeah, I'll put the links underneath in YouTube and on the podcast stuff. I'll put I'll put the links. Because I like your point that you made when we were talking offline about how she and Marx are kind of similar, that they're both from this elite, wealthy class of people, and that perhaps this guilt that they're holding for being having all this unearned privilege, they need to translate that into like they need to share it with people in a way. Right. It's an right. interesting and point. So they, they, they throw their burden onto poor white and Asian people in New York City because they feel like they were born with a yeah. silver spoon in their mouth. So um which is a shame. All right. Well uh thank you everyone for watching this episode of Deprogrammed. You can join us every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And you can, of course, follow the show on Twitter at unsafe show. You can go to Facebook and look up the deprogrammed Facebook page. Also, there's an unsafe space page. You can support the show at patreon.com slash unsafe space. And you can go to unsafeshow.com for a bunch of stuff, I guess. And of course, find the podcast uh, unsafe space if you would like. So thank you again, everyone for watching. Join Carrie and I next week. If you've got suggestions for what we should be talking about, especially based on this show. I think we brought up a lot of topics. Uh, you know, post them in YouTube or Twitter or whatever and and uh would love to do that. It'd be fun. Thanks everyone.